the Physio Spill Podcast, the person behind the coach. Paul Wellens talks us through his journey as a player and coach at St Helens Rugby League and what it takes to be a success in his eyes. It's our pleasure on the Physio Spill to have Paul Wellow Wellens on the pod. Um, he's a very humble man, so, so I apologise for this uh, very expansive intro into him, but, it, but I wouldn't do him any justice if I didn't um, give him the, the detail he requires. Uh, he's a true rugby legend, um, and he's played for St. Helens 495 times, won five Super League titles, five Challenge Cups, and two World Club Championships too. He's represented his country uh, no less than 31 times, unbelievable well And his indiv- individual honours include a Man of Steel, Harry Sunderland Award, and two Lance Trophy winners. He's a diamond of a bloke, and, and I'm privileged to say that, that I'm his colleague at St. Helens, and, and hopefully his friend. He may tell me different as we get through the pod. So welcome, well to the podcast. And if you could do, mate, just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, obviously growing up in St. Helens... Uh... You know, rugby league was something that you know was always always there in my mind. In particular, I grew up 300 yards from Nosley Road, uh, so my earliest memories were were seeing the ground, you know, hearing the roars on match day. Uh, you know, it, it was just something that was was always there. You know, I come from a pretty big family. I've got uh, six brothers and sisters. You know, three older brothers, an older sister, and a twin sister. But all my older brothers played rugby, uh, both you know locally, both rugby union and rugby league. Uh, my, my father Harry, when he was around, he was a he was a scout at St Helens for over thirty years. So he'd spend almost every Sunday morning going out and about watching games, and you know, quite often as a young boy, I'd go along to those games with him and watch him and take a ball with me myself, and you know, kick on the on the field to the side of the game that he was watching, and it was just rugby all, all the time. And uh, yeah, my family was a big influence. The my eldest brother Kevin actually uh, he, he played for St Helens, played about twenty odd games for, for St Helens in the eight, 1985 season, uh, in the in the same year that Malman Inga was at St Helens. So you know that was something that probably my earliest rugby memory really was that my eldest brother played for Saints with Malman Inga, uh, and probably another reason why you know rugby league was such an attraction for me. Conversations we've had before, I, I know you've got a very strong uh, passion for another sport and for another team uh will you just give us a bit of detail about your other passion as well please matt yeah well the eldest brother kevin who a sports bike who played for saints he was a big manchester city fan growing up so uh out of my three older brothers two of them support manchester city and one liverpool so i went with the majority uh and yeah we've been man city fans since since being young boys and uh, i suppose now we're kind of living the dream so to speak after a few after years and years in the doldrums and yo-yo in between leagues but uh it's yeah it's it's, it's something that we do as a family which you know we spend some time together you know me and my two brothers and our, our sons and daughters go as well and you know we all go make it a bit of a bit of a family thing and i've always find it you know a nice break from rugby league uh, a different sport something to watch something you can actually watch without getting too irate or too emotionally invested in like like you would normally with the rugby particularly when you're working uh, so yeah, it's a great family thing. It's something that we enjoy doing. Then, you know, now particularly because because we're, we're very good as well. You finally uh, reaping the supporters' reward for years <laughs> of, of probably turmoil and, and disappointment. And um, just just moving on to to your playing career, obviously, 
you've had a, 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 an extremely illustrious and, and robust and long-term playing career. Um, and you're probably one of the most decorated Super League players. But I just want you to just, just give us a little bit of detail at potentially some of the, the low points that you might have experienced during your playing career. Um, and what was the effect on you? Uh, yeah, I say over, over you know my, my my first team professional career lasted nearly eighteen seasons, so there's certainly so many ups and downs throughout that period. Uh, but I think the, the 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 one that sticks out, and it's not necessarily a moment, but is is we went through a period where we lost five grand finals on the run, and you know in any sport, any player would tell you, you know, you lose a final, that is bad. It's a tough pill to take. It's it's hard to get over. But when you when you do that year on year for five years, it really does become, you know, gut wrenching at times. And even still now, I look back and sometimes can't quite believe that we went all that time. And there's part of me was a little bit proud of the team that you know we kept dusting ourselves off and we kept going back there and we kept having a go and we never actually shied away from from the challenge of going to win a grand final. But every time we lost one, it just seemed to become more and more difficult. Uh, and you know. It was a, you know, now I look back on it as a huge learning experience, but uh, but uh, you know, certainly at the time it was it was really difficult, mate. Just just touching on that, right? So you've obviously you've had multiple disappointments year after year, and and just to put things into context for people that that uh, are listening, you're preparing all year round really to win. Well, three three type three things, but predominantly it's the Challenge Cup halfway through the year. And then it's the grand final at the end of the year. And there's probably been a slight swing of importance on the grand final being the final part of the year. You're emotionally invested in, in, in being successful. You've reached the final. Can you just go through your preparation for the finals and how you felt individually leading into a final after you'd already lost one the year before? What How was your approach? What were you thinking going into the game? Yeah, I think what what you try and do, like as a player, sometimes you try and convince yourself otherwise that you know it's just another game, it's another eighty minutes, and kind of what happened in the year previous doesn't matter. But the very fact that you're thinking about it show, shows that it does, uh, and you know it's not something that you, you you can just ignore. You know, very you know by nature, I've always been a kind of need to avoid failure type of person. I think that that's what's driven me. Right, uh, so you know that in itself. Uh, you know, probably added pressure as well. Uh, I was going into the games kind of not wanting to lose rather than thinking, you know, what what have we got to do to win? Uh, you know, I, I would consider myself different now in that sense. Uh, I've learned from those experiences and I've learned to, you know, adapt them, you know, adapt my, my thought process in a different way. But certainly at the time, that's the type of personality I was. And uh, when you do continue to lose big games like that, it certainly becomes more and more difficult. It did do, and I'm sure... You know, a lot of my teammates would say the same as well. Uh, I was probably one of the few guys that were there for all five. I think James Roby would have been the other guy. So, you know, we were there and we, you know, we experienced them all. Uh, you know, it was difficult, but uh, again, it's a learning experience, isn't it, as well? So, uh, you know, I like to think that I'm a better person for it and, uh, and I've become a better player after it and a better coach since because of those experiences. Well, uh, clearly, you know, rugby league is a, is a team sport, but as part of one of the guys that lost all five, how, how much sort of responsibility do you take yourself as those sort of grand final losses went? And is that something that went through your mind or is it still very much a team a team piece? 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously it's very, very much a team thing, but it did weigh heavily on my mind, uh, you know, because as well, being a local boy, I understand, you know, I cared for the club, but not just, you know, you know, if I played for a team, you know, say, for example, it was a London Broncos, for example, uh, I am not so sure whether I would have been as emotionally invested. And you got to think on those games, I've got family and friends in the terraces and different things like that, which all, all add to it as well. And, I know four grand finals when we used to do the ticket allocation and get your ticket orders in. Uh, fellas like mine would always be like around 45, 50 when everybody else would be ordering six or seven. <laughs> it was just the way it was. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it did weigh heavily on me and the, you know, the pressure was there. Uh, and you know, I, I kind of learned to adapt a little bit. And I you know, was really disappointed because some of those, couple of those finals, I can hold my hand up and say we were, you know, we were beaten and beaten well and deserved to lose. There's a couple of those that I, th- I thought, you know, if we'd have handled certain situations better, we should have actually won the game, which, you know, they're, they're the ones that frustrate me more so than, than the whole five together. Mate, did you, ever, did you ever lose belief? Did you ever lose confidence that you could win? Were you going into a game, into the, the weeks, them games, and going thinking, do you know what, with what we've been through, I don't know if we've got it in us to actually win the game. No, I didn't, I didn't lose belief, but... Uh, you know, certain moments in games come along, don't they? And uh, and and you know, grand finals are very difficult games to win anyway, and particularly win uh, from coming from behind. You know, once you go behind, and there were certain times in those games where we went behind, and you know that it's going to be very, very difficult to get yourselves back in the game uh, because they are such close games. You know, more often than not, defenses give very, very little away, and and that proved to be the case. You know, 2011 was a big frustration for me because I actually left the field injured and uh, there was a game, you know, myself and, and Michael Shenton left the, the field injured and it was a game which we were winning 8-2 and looking very comfortable and uh, I think Michael Shenton's injury more so than mine really affected the team because the side that he was defending is that where we ended up conceding uh, all our tries so that was a real frustrating one but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to credit the opposition you know, Leeds have been fantastic throughout that period and we're always a very tough team to beat and you know given the personalities that they had in their team your, your Kevin Sinfields your Rob Burrows your Jamie Peacocks you can see why they were were a such team uh, such a tough team to beat as well so yeah I suppose the, there's no shame in losing to a great team like that but it doesn't make it any easier <laughs> mate you, you touched on on your family there and probably the word would be expectation for both family and the town uh, being involved with the club I, I know what that feels like and I'm not even a player so I can only imagine what it feels like as a as a player, what were your family's reaction and and the town's reaction afterwards? Did you did you feel that reaction? Was there was there a support? What what reaction did you feel after the the results? Yeah, well, obviously everyone was very very down and disappointed. I mean, I, from, from a family perspective, I, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't sit here and say I've never had anything but you know one hundred percent support. You know, particularly in those tough times. You know, you know. My family, all being St. Helens supporters, were disappointed that Saints had lost the game because they're St. Helens supporters. You add into the fact that there's a son, brother, uh, uncle involved in, in that defeat, and then they probably felt it just as much as I did. But their support for me never wavered, particularly through those tough times. And I suppose that's when you know your friends and your family do show their true colours in terms of when the support comes, because the support was always there previous to that. What, what people seem to forget, after, you know, lost, lost those five, five grand finals, but I actually won my first four. And, you know, rugby league being a game, game it is, is that sometimes it can seem like it, it can be really easy and sometimes it, it can seem like it's really difficult. And, 
know, it, it taught me a lot. Of, you know, I learned a lot of lessons from those experiences because as a young player winning grand finals, I kind of thought, well, this is just what we do. We play for St. Helens and we turn up at grand finals and we win or we turn up at Challenge Cups and we win. But rugby league is a game that, you know, if you think it's going to come easy, if you ever think it's going to come easy, it's going to bite you on the backside at some point. And that's certainly what it did to us in a big way. Skip forward from from then, Wello. Um, and if we just go into discuss the 2014 grand final. Obviously, you've lost five on the bounce. You, you reach another grand final after, uh, I think it was like a, a three-year hiatus, probably 2012, 2013, and then back in it in 2014. At the time I was with the club, so we, we had an injury-stricken side, really, and we, we're leading into that game. Can you go through your thoughts and, and how you were as captain leading into that game? What were your actions? How did you feel that game was going to go? What, what were your belief systems leading into it? Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, 2014 in itself was a strange year. I'd had a conversation with Nathan Brown, who, you know, decided that I wasn't going to be the permanent fullback anymore. And Johnny Lomax was going to take that role. You know, one which I, I, you know, I took, took, uh, I took, I took on and, and actually enjoyed playing a different role, so to speak, and throughout the, throughout the course of the year. We actually won our first eight or nine games, were comfortably out on top, and then it's a real tough period through the middle of the season. Uh, you know, we lost a few key players. John Wilkin and Luke Walsh uh, were, were pivotal to us at that point, and, uh, you know, they were the kind of the brains on the field, so to speak, and we lost them. And yeah, we ended up getting to a grand final, and like I said, we were we were massively down on troops. And you know, although we finished top that year by the skin of our teeth, we certainly didn't go into the game as favourites. You know, Wigan were playing much better towards the back end of the year than us. Uh, but in the lead up to the game, you know, obviously I get that kind of that sense that I've got in those previous grand finals. I think you know what probably did help, and you know, you never don't want to go to a grand final, but not going in 2012 and 2013 was probably a blessing in disguise, really, to have a couple of years of not feeling that anguish, not feeling that disappointment. Uh, and then by the time we went back in 2014, there was only, again, like I said, myself and James Roby who'd, who'd experienced those five defeats. I go into that game as captain and... You've got your press conferences at Old Trafford on the Monday. And as I'm driving to the press conference, and I know I'm going to get asked about the five grand finals and whether it plays on your mind or not. And absolutely, it played on my mind. But my thought process here is that, look, I'm the leader of this team and I can't go into a press conference and talk about being anxious and being nervous and a grand final defeat that's happened five, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, playing on my mind because... I know at home there's a group of guys who I play with who may be listening to this and they'll be taking the field and they don't carry the same scars that I do. They don't carry the same scars that James Roby does in terms of those defeats. So if I actually make them aware of that, I actually probably apply more pressure on them than they probably already need anyway. So I very much poker faced it throughout all the press conferences and said, oh, I don't really think about the five grand final defeats and this is a, a brand new year. It's a fr fresh playing group and, uh, you know, with that in mind, I think we approached it with, you know, a bit of a carefree attitude. We we knew that we were the underdogs uh, going into the game. And, you know, I think that took the pressure off us a little bit. You know, the pressure was on Wigan. Uh, you know, they were expected to win. And, and grand finals are never easy, but I think it was really important for me as a, a, as a captain throughout that period in the build-up, certainly to that game, was to not, not put my 
my frailty, so to speak, up on the rest of the group. You recognised that the effects, the things that had happened to you and your response to those things may have had a negative impact on the rest of the group. So you was like, right, listen, I've got to remain confident and positive to not push my biases and the experiences that I felt onto, onto others. Um, you've mentioned pressure a couple of times, Willow. How important do you feel the recognition of pressure is and how easy do you feel it is to try and influence? I mean, pre- pressure can come in different forms as well, can't it? You, you know, there's, a, there's external pressure, whether it be, you know, people now, particularly looking in the, the generation that we live in around social media and expectations and players and coaches are they're so much more accessible. So, you know, pressure can come externally. Uh, pressure can come from with, within your own team, your own playing group, and you know, you know the standards that you want and you drive and you expect, you know, brings a certain amount of pressure. I always found for myself that the pressure, the, the main pressure that came was from myself. You know, I did have high standards and I wanted, I wanted to perform at my absolute best every week, and sometimes that's not always the case. But I knew what me at my best looked like. Uh, you know, when I played, I knew, you know, if I went out onto the field and did certain things. That I could walk off and go, you know, I've had a, I've had a good game today. Uh, you know, I think even more so now as a coach, you you're very aware when preparing players for games is how to offset pressure and at sometimes add pressure because I think you can't always go down the route of we have to alleviate pressure because sometimes pressure drives players on. Some players need it to actually go. You know what? I need a performance here. So it's about understanding sometimes the group and the individuals within the group applying that pressure and sometimes taking away that pressure and it does require a lot of thought uh, and you don't always get it right but as long as you learn from those experiences well and adapt and be able to you know change change the next time you know you can get positive results moving forward and just to go back to 2014 again Matt and we'll, we'll discuss through we we eventually win the game uh, there's a symbolic picture and moment after the game with you that, that just looked like a complete release of, of everything that you probably experienced and pent it up in the, in those five years of disappointment. But from your perspective, can you just talk through your emotions immediately when that final, because it, it was close, so we weren't out of the woods. When that final whistle was blown, what were your emotions immediately? Yeah, well, I remember a few minutes before we'd kick the ball downfield and Jordan Turner kicked the ball over the sidelines for a scrum and there must have been about two and a half minutes left. And Louis McCarthy Scarsbrook came over to give me a high five. And I won't use bad language, but I told him to politely do one. There's two and a half minutes left in this game and he's saying it's one, we're up by eight. But I'm thinking in my mind, well, if they score and someone dives on top of him scoring, it could be an eight-point try and then it's 14 all. You know, this like I'm always thinking of worst case scenario that could happen. And if this game isn't dead yet, you know, we saw a recent game with us against Catalan at Magic where crazy things can happen in rugby league. And so I just wouldn't accept for a, for a minute until that final whistle went or the final hooter went. I wasn't accepting any form of you know celebration. Uh, and I remember the crowd started to chant down as we're defending our own line and defending outside Mark Percival at the time on the right edge. If you remember in the game, obviously, uh, Lance Ahaya went off and we had to we had to shuffle around a little bit. Uh, and as they kicked for the corner and the crowd were counting down 3-2-1, Mark Percival hits the ball into the stands. And it was at that moment, it was like, it, it sounds really probably a little bit cheesy, but I, 
I used to walk around with this kind of dull ache in my guts around this five grand final defeats. It's like just this nagging thing that just never went away. This you lost five grand finals, you can't get back there, you haven't won one. And then when Matt Percival hit that ball into the stands, it was that feeling went with it. And that was the kind of relief that I felt. And it was pure relief. It wasn't joy. It wasn't like it was pure relief for about you know, the, the, an hour or so after the game, all I could think think of was, thank God, thank God, we've won. We've finally come back and won. And obviously in the days following, you do start to enjoy the moment. You watch the game back. You know, you, and I was particularly pleased because we had so many young players who came into the team that year. You, Greg Richards, Luke Thompson's, Mark Percival's, those guys who are still around. Uh, you know, Tommy Makinson, who scored a, device, a decisive try in the game. You know, I like to think that, you know, that experience... You know that day, and th- those young players getting there and finally, finally winning, winning a grand final, in some way set them up for a lot of the success they've in, enjoyed recently. Do you feel that it had a, a defining moment on your career? Did did it shape what your thoughts were on your career looking back? But did it also shape your life looking forward? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of people mentioned that moment to me. You know, me sliding on my knees and being a joyous moment and. I'll talk about it like, like being one of the best moments of my life in terms of that that, that having that feeling of uh, you know of, of relief that, that I got that day, uh, and I suppose you know looking back uh, at the probably twenty year old me, I would never envisage being in that position, and I would have told me, I would have told the twenty year old me to never take anything for granted in this in this game because. Know how well it can be going, and it was going really, really well at one point. There's always a defeat around the corner. There's always a disappointment around the corner. Stay focused as much as you can, uh, and you know I've learned from those experiences, both you know, both you know negative experiences and, and, and positive ones. Uh, and now moving forward, like I, I think that's rounded me into a certainly you know from a coaching perspective, it, it, I think it, it, it shaped me into being a better coach actually understanding you know the game and the way it can be understanding the personalities and how you know, different individuals are affected by certain things uh, and you know we also you know it's been telling us now we, we have a duty to occur to our players but we also have a duty to, to actually challenge them and get the best out of them and and that's what we try and do now and I think all those experiences that that I've had can help me better better you know gives me a better understanding in how to do that would you say the um, the 2014 Grand Final was the greatest achievement in your career, well, or, or would you have another example of what would define the greatest achievement you've had? I mean, certainly, for, obviously, you, you mentioned earlier there's the individual accolades, and they were all great in terms of personal achievements. And you know, I'm very grateful to have my name alongside some of the greats of rugby league to own those uh, individual accolades. But certainly, you know, all the you know the major you know the fond memories that I look back on at the times that I shared you know with the team when we won things you know winning the challenge cup in Cardiff in 2004 for me was you know really you know special moments as well as you know obviously you know you know about the Saints Wigan rivalry and I'd grew up watching you know dominant Wigan side win most things and uh, we got to a challenge cup final in Murrayfield in 2002 and got beat by Wigan so to to play them at Cardiff two years later and finally win you know, it was a real special moment for me as well as a, as, a, as a young player. It was a great day, day down in Cardiff and you know, one that I look back on with real fond memories. Uh, and then you, can't, you, you, know, you fast forward 10 years to that grand final in 2014 and again, similar emotions. 
obviously once once uh, the relief has passed and you can start to enjoy it, you do you do look back on it and go, wow, like you know, to be able to lead your hometown club to a successful Super League title, uh, you know, is it, it, again, it's you know, I look back at that boy who grew up 300 yards from Nosley Road, you know, that they are like kind of things of dreams, aren't they? So, you know, to be able to get the opportunity to lift that trophy above my head was, you know, something special. And if we just f- fast forward one year, mate, from the 2014 to 2015, um, obviously I-, I was with you at that stage as well, go- going through that point of your career. Uh, could you just share a bit of detail in regards to the hip injury that you were managing uh, through the early stages of 2015? It probably started throughout 2014, really. I had a bit of a grumbly growing issue and, you know, you, know, you as physios will know that, uh, you know, that, that, that's a sign of them. It's uh, you know I ended up having a steroid injection which completely you know got rid of all those you know symptoms really and I finished 2014 felt really good I thought I, you know I think I've got another year in me and the club were you know more than happy with the way that I was performing obviously I'd had conversations around coaching staff about my my, my uh, game time will be reduced due to the fact that I was 35 at the time which I understand understood completely but I still thought I had a lot to offer. Uh, and it's only, you know, kind of, through, kind of through the the back end of pre-season that those symptoms started to come back again. And you know, me being me, I want to be on the training field. I want to get back playing. Give me another injection, and I pushed on with that. And uh, again, the symptoms went, but then this soon came back again. Uh, and then I was just fighting a, you know, a, run, a constant battle with myself really to try and get myself out on the field. And the symptoms became worse and worse. And and all you know, me and yourself, Millsy, we were exhausting every avenue possible to try and, and get me back fit and get on the field. And numerous trips down to Coventry to see hip specialists and uh, that type of thing. But you know, it, it it got to the point where you know I played my last game at Good Friday uh, at Wigan, and I was on the field. I came well, I limped off at half time, and I got jumped on an exercise bike tried to keep it going, walked back out onto the field to play. And I remember Matty Smith, who was playing at Wigan at the time, he was like, he looked across at me and said, what are you, what are you doing? Like, because <laughs> he could see me limping around the field. And then about five minutes into the half, I dived on a loose ball, like gingerly got to my feet and basically walked off the back of the field and I was done. Uh, and actually walking around the back of the field that day, I was thinking, ah, that could be me here. This could be my last game. I don't know, you know, since that game, we we spent another probably four or five weeks, didn't we, trying to trying to get things right? But it was just it got to the point where, like in my mind, I, as a player, I was always doing what kind of what can I do to get myself fit? What can I do to get myself back on the field? And I had a bit of a light bulb moment really when I was going through one of, one of these procedures to try and, and and see if we could stimulate some blood flow to to you know to that area. You know, I, I was being sick. Uh, you know, I wasn't healthy at all. And I had a kind of bit of a, like, say, a light bulb moment where I stood up and I looked in the mirror. I looked awful. And I just thought to myself, you know what? Like, you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. And you've played the game for 18 seasons. You've had a career that, you know, so many people would just, you know, give give the right arm for. You know, so many young rugby players and so many lads I played when I was young. Uh, so, yeah, that moment came to me and, you know, I made the decision pretty much there and then that I was going to go back to the club and tell them that I'd be retiring. Uh, you know, it was it was a tough one because you you you, know, you don't want to let go. You you still see yourself as a rugby player, but it was certainly the right decision. I you know, I got to the point where I couldn't even kick a ball in the garden with, with my son. You know what I mean? That 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 type of thing. So can we go to the park, Dad? No, I can't. I can't even walk. So it's like you, you 
you kind of get a handle on yourself. You're working out in your own mind, and it was certainly you know the right decision at, at that time, and and one that you know now I look back on. And I'm glad I made. Now I reckon just to put it into context as well about the, that particular treatment that that, that you uh, that you had at that time. Well, that that treatment's a, an extremely uh, vicious and aggressive treatment to try and promote blood, blood flow. And I remember having a conversation with you during that point. And you were just in absolute pieces, not from the hip, but from the treatment that you'd had done. And obviously we tried multiple things during that period of time. So I think my question for you is, did that help you make your decision? Knowing that you tried everything that could have possibly been suggested for you, did that help you just say, right, right, I know now this is me? Yeah, I mean... In a weird way, because people always said to me at the time, "Is like, oh, it's unfortunate you didn't get to go out on your own terms. Uh, and I think, well, you know, I won the, the grand final the year before. And if I'd have finished after that grand final, I'd have always been going, could he have gone again? Could he have gone again? I should have played another year. I actually finished my rugby league career knowing that I had nothing more to give. And, you know, I think that, that was quite powerful for me in terms of cooking coming to terms with not playing anymore is that it wasn't a choice of can I play again or should I play again I can't play again so it made it very definite for me which I think certainly well it definitely helped me uh, you know whilst it, you know there was a part of me that felt like I was letting the team down by by you know finishing midway through a season in some respects I was helping them out because it allowed them the opportunity to get someone in who could actually run someone who could actually contribute uh, and yeah so I think it was it was something that actually actually helped me to come to terms with not playing anymore, the fact that it was such a definite experience. So you've made the decision, you've looked at yourself in the mirror, you've gone through that process of recognition as to where you're up to and what you need to do. What was your next conversation? Who who was it with to go through? And can you can you give us some detail of that conversation that you had as well, Well, if you don't mind? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I spoke to my, my wife and... Uh, my parents and just kind of you know I let them know that you know, I'm going to go in if this was on a Tuesday I'm going to let them know on Wednesday morning that uh, I, I'm going to call it a day in terms of my playing career so you know when I, when I went in the next day I spoke to you know Kieran Cunningham who was the coach at the time and uh, to be honest I don't think they were too surprised I think they, they, they probably saw it coming as well and obviously Jamal at least he was there as assistants and Sean Long and then obviously I let other people know him and Manus and Mike Rush so they could you know, set things in motion in terms of announcing the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be finishing my playing career. Uh, you know, so it all happened pretty quickly, really. And, you know, there's, you know, I've got some fantastic messages from ex-players and friends and family and, you know, different things on Sky Sports News when I packed in. I was really overwhelmed by it all, actually, that, you know, there was such a, you know, a reach out in terms of support for me and, you know, from all, all different, you know, players that have played against, you know, you know from different quarters, uh, so it actually turned into like a pretty nice experience. The fact that oh, it's a pretty, pretty big deal. I remember like I was with my, my, my son at the time. He was only nine or ten, and uh, like Manchester City tweeted about about me uh, me retiring and wish, wishing me all the best. And you know he, he was chuffed as anything with just the fact that Manchester City had tweeted me. So you know little things like that that you, you do remember. And yeah, so it all happened pretty quickly. But I was I was convinced it was the right decision. I've got to say at the time, and you know, the, like the, the support that the club gave me was just fantastic. Like, the, I couldn't have asked for anything more. Manus, Mike, Rush, the coaching staff, yourselves, and the medical staff, I couldn't have got any more support than than, than what I got. 
And again, that makes it easier. You don't feel like you've been tossed aside. You know, there's a genuine, genuine care there for you and your well-being. You know, that went beyond rugby. Uh, and you know, again, when you're making a difficult decision like that, having that support makes it so much easier. Thanks for sharing that, pal. We know a hip operation came after that point in time and then the rehabilitation process after the hip. But I just want to take you a bit further forward into the transition into a coach and, and like from your perspective, why did you make that, that decision? Because we know how challenging your time is as a player, being pretty hamstrung by a season, and then you've decided to jump straight into a coaching position with the same, if not more, restrictions on, on your time. Can you just go through what your why was for that? Yeah, well, I reckon it was about 28 to 29 when I, when I thought, you know what, I actually I want to coach, I want to finish playing. And uh, at that time, I didn't know I was going to play till 35. I thought I'd maybe play till 31, 32, but started to get my head around, around coaching. So I used to do, like, sometimes through the, the England programme, like little sessions, like like working with fullbacks. I'd do, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll help out on scholarship sessions every now and again uh, at the club. Uh, it was just something that I was, you know, convinced myself, well, you know, this is what I want to do and it is absolutely what I wanted to do moving forward. And, uh, you know, playing until I was 35, actually, you know, pushed it down the road a little bit further than I thought it, it would come. But I couldn't wait to get involved. But it was certainly a, an eye-opening experience for me. I think, you know, when you've been a player and a successful player and you have you know that you have a rugby league knowledge, but that's not enough. And that that quickly became apparent to me that I'm actually going to have to develop myself as a coach like I did when I joined Saints Academy as a 16-year-old, develop myself as a rugby player. I'm going to have to learn what it is to actually be a coach uh, because I knew I had, the, I had the knowledge, but getting that knowledge across and, and you know how to communicate and different things like that uh, you know, was, was a real challenge for me early. Uh, and it's something that I had to work really hard on. How how did you work really hard on it? Well, or what kind of things did you put in place to, to help that process? Was it education? Was it exposure to different coaches and experience of different coaches? Well, straight straight away for one, I did my level three, uh, which uh, you know Craig Richards, who uh, the England women's coach now, who, who who's worked at the club, he helped me through my, my, my level three, and you know really give me a, you know really guiding guiding me through that, so to speak, and. You know, taught me things around coach development that, that you know I didn't really understand at the time. Uh, I enrolled on an Aspire coaching program through UK Sports. It was it was eight residentials over the space of uh, eighteen to twenty four months, where I'd go with twenty two coaches from completely different sports than rugby league. Uh, you know, Olympic sports, rowing, gymnastics, judo, netball, all these coaches that you know I, I had the opportunity to mix with regularly. Uh, now that was a real pivotal moment for for me in, in my coaching development because no one was talking to me as Paul Wellens, the rugby player. It was just coaches in a room talking about coaching, talking about different practices, the different challenges and the different experiences that we'd all had. We were put in different situations where we had to, you know, be in, be in uncomfortable positions, whether it be doing presentations on certain things, different things like that, which some things that I had never, I'd never done before. But I look back on that experience of the Aspire programme has been real pivotal in, in, in developing me as a coach to, the, to where I'm at now because it gave me an understanding of what I needed to do to improve. Uh, and when you've got that understanding, then it's just about your own dedication and your own application to take it forward. 
just on the Aspire program, mate, um, and just to give us a bit more of, of a deeper dive into that, you, you mentioned a couple of things on or, or a, a big global like umbrella thing on how it actually created something for you that helps you develop. Is there anything in particular? Can you give us any examples that you did within that that, that definitely sparked that level of, do you know what, I need to be better at this or this is something that definitely I need to, you know, work more on? Yeah, well, like... One, one thing that I was I became really conscious of is is that I didn't want to be that or uh, he's only coaching because he used to be a good player because ultimately at the start that's probably what it was like you play you played at the club you've been a good player was I a good coach then was he a great coach probably not I had a good understanding of the game so for me it was about develop, develop developing as a coach I always liken it to when Homer Simpson looks in the mirror and he's got his big flabby guts but he sees a six pack and pectorals because it's like that's why I felt at the time is that you know the rugby player looking into the mirror was seeing what he wanted to see, not what actually was there. Uh, so when I mixed with all these coaches and saw, you know, the way that they apply themselves, and you know, there was a lot of experienced coaches on there as well who'd who'd performed. So I was very conscious of that line of how do you transition from being a top athlete to a top coach, and I had people on that course who who trod the same path. And, and lent and lent on them, and they shared some of the experiences that they'd had. And it was it was just like little things around like how you communicate. I was coaching with a scholarship at the time, so I would, I would communicate with fifteen and sixteen year olds. Had to be different to how I communicated with eighteen, nineteen year olds. How I communicated with old age. What I found as well is that you know, like as a captain at the club, I had a very direct manner in the which in, in when I spoke to the team this is what we're doing this is how we're going to do it let's get it done type thing but understood uh, that that made me understand there's different ways to communicate there's different ways you know how you communicate who you communicate to do you all do you always have to communicate does it always have to be your voice different things like that so along the way I just kept picking up so many different things which made me then kind of start to look in the mirror and start to see what I wanted to see in terms of coach not what I thought was there at the start. From the point of view of, of other challenges you may have faced, well, or when you, when you first made the transition, you first went into coaching, you mentioned stuff about communication, you mentioned things about um, wanting to improve and wanting to develop. Are there any other challenges that you felt were, were definitely points that you thought, I never thought that I, this would be a problem? So when you first stepped into the role, for example, the time that it takes to be a coach and what it takes to prepare like a coach, which is a different preparation to a player. Was there any other challenges that you can give us examples of? Mate, the biggest one for me is one, and one, and and I know you're familiar with the phrase "player mode," <laughs> is there? But but like I, like obviously, you know yourself and Matty and people who worked at the club at the time, you know, were very kind of upfront with me and in, in in the real nicest sense because I, as a player. I'd become institutionalized of not as a lot of players would do to you get told concentrate on yourself concentrate on your own job don't worry about anything else prepare yourself to be at your best so for probably 18 months after that i was that same person worrying about myself caring about myself you know but coaching is about caring about the greater caring about your players caring about other people you know not walking past a bag of balls that's laying on the training field picking them up and actually taking them off no simple things like that because as a player, you you you're not wired that way. You're wired to just do what you need to do to perform at a weekend. Uh, so I had to kind of have, like you say, there a little bit of a rewiring, and I was helped along the way by 
by, by you know yourself and Matty and other people that you know you know saw that you know, certain things needed to change if you're going to be successful in the coaching game. And you know, I'm I'm really grateful that you know those honest conversations were had because it was a bit of a blind spot to me at the time, which I think it would be for most players. And you know what I would say to anybody who's you know thinking about transitioning from athlete to coach is that uh, you know that that biggest thing is that you've been the way you have and you've been successful for a reason because you're driven and you, you're very you know, kind of, I don't want to use the word selfish, but it's a selfish approach in terms of getting yourself right. And that needs to change because it took me a while you know, for that to dawn on me. Uh, and I'm glad it did because, again, I would never, ever develop myself as a coach or as a person if I hadn't have, have, have kind of cottoned on to that. Well, look, being a... St. Helens, born and bred, played for St. Helens, was there, and now coaching at St. Helens, has there ever been sort of a conscious thought process around the need to to go and apply your trade outside of, of St. Helens and, and as much as the benefit of the Aspire uh, group where you had lots of different voices and stuff, is that ever something that you, you considered that you'd need to do to to continue to improve or, or, or frame how you see the world differently? It's certainly something that you know I, I do think about. Uh, I mean, like you say, I've, I, I call it. Uh, sometimes I may need to cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> I've been there such a long time. You know, I've been there since I was a sixteen-year-old boy, and I'm now forty-one. So uh, it is a long time. I mean, but I've got a, such a strong connection with the club. I really enjoy being there. I, really, I, you know, I love playing there. I love coaching there. We've got a great atmosphere now. And, and at this moment in time, I still feel like I'm learning every day. Uh, I've worked with some fantastic coaches, you know, Justin Albrook a couple of years ago, now Christian Wolf, and I'm learning so much more from them. Uh, you know, the, the staff that we've got there are great. And, and, and the playing group in particular, are just fantastic. And, uh, you know, when I come to work every day and I see a playing group that wants success and really drive each other for success, it just makes me want to be a part of it. So I would never rule out, you know, one day leaving the club. And I think that, you know, one day, you know, if, if we're honest in the coaching game, you know, coaches don't hang around for long, for, you know, for very long in terms of if you, if you ever want to be a head coach, there's, there's just a bit of a shelf life on that. One day I will move away from the club, but right now I don't see that need to be the case because I'm still learning and still loving what I do. Mate, just on, um, on your coaching commitments, and what you do, obviously, you, you do the stuff with Saint Helens, and and you you're currently, as we speak now, away on camp with England as well. What kind of impact does that con constant nature of your job, finishing a domestic season, then going on to an international scene, what kind of impact does that have on on you, but also on you've already mentioned how important family is, the the impact it has on your family as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do it because I love doing it. So the impact on me is is very minimal, I suppose, compared to what it is my family. I'm here doing rugby league, coaching rugby league. I'm really enjoying that experience. So, uh, you know, in some sense, it's great for me. But I do understand the impact it, it has on my family. In particular, my wife. My wife works full time as well. Uh, I've got three kids. So in terms of summer holidays, for example, we don't have summer holidays. We haven't. It's something that we've become used to not having summer holidays. You know, get a small window at the end of a year in which we can go away, but quite often the kids are in school and that becomes difficult to take them out and things like that. 
uh, you know, I'm away long time. Uh, I'm in camp now. You know, a few years ago, I went to the World Cup for eight weeks away in Australia. You know, there's other people having to pick up the slack of uh, of what you know I, when I'm not there and, and what I would normally do. And I'm so grateful, not just obviously my wife and the kids who obviously make sacrifices as well, but my 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 in-laws, my, my own parents, my brothers and sisters, they all help out and everything that they can do. And like I said, I've got that strong family network around me, which makes things easier. But certainly the biggest sacrifices are made by my family, uh, you know, and that's been the case since I've, I've been young. And it's allowed me to do the thing that I love doing, whether that be playing or coaching. And picking up on, you know, that schedule, the intensity of stuff, and me and Mills, you've discussed this, probably we discussed it more in COVID, but you alluded to it at the start about creating space for decompression to, to make sure that you can stay at your best as a, as a coach. Is that something that you you do on purpose or something that sort of finds its space within your weeks, your months, your seasons, etc.? Yeah, I think it's just something you, you try and find those moments when they come along to try and take stock, don't you? And, uh, you know, because it's a high-pressure environment that we're in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, I think if you're always looking to be at it, at it, at it, then at some point there's, there's good, there, there is going to be a, a breaking point. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I know certainly from our experience at St. Helens that we always try and find time to either lighten things up or mentally deload because, you know, when you're playing 29 fixtures a year and they're coming thick and fast, it just seems like you, you're going non-stop. Uh, so, yeah, it is something that we're conscious of. I don't think you can, you know, well, certainly from my perspective, is that I don't really pinpoint times. I kind of take opportunities when they come along to do that. And I suppose it's about recognising when those opportunities come along. Uh, but, yeah, it is important to do. You you know, the, you've got to find a work-life, uh, family balance, and, and it's that's really important. Uh, because, like I say, the, those sacrifices that my family do make come at a price and I can't keep taking, taking, taking. So it's important that we do get that time to spend with each other. And and, and, and when we do get that time, it is you know all the more precious because of, of the jobs that we're in. Mate, just to have a chat about your role, really, um, and, and gen- generally the assistant coaching role, there's obviously a lot of uh, pressure and um, I'm sort of... Um, attention comes for a head coach. Can you just, in your experience, give us your understanding of what an assistant coach is? Yeah, I mean, it's a role that I suppose when I went into it, I didn't actually understand what it is. But like, I see it as a providing support for for the head coach. You know, I'm assisting the head coach in what he wants to deliver. Uh, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, now, the way I approach that I'm, I'm a, is that, like, what I've always been, I like to always think, always been, whether I've been playing or coaching, is honest and upfront. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to work with a coach and I've worked with coaches previous who allow me the platform to disagree at times uh, because, you know, because sometimes I do disagree. Uh, and I wouldn't want to sit there and agree with everything they say just because we want to keep the peace actually what we're trying to do within our organisation or whatever coach, we're trying to get better, get better as people, get better as, as a team. We want to improve ourselves as staff as much as we do as players. So it's important that we have those open and honest conversations. 
know, Christian, the coach now, he, he offers up those opportunities for, for me to to voice my opinions, which I've, I'm really appreciative of. And, and I think that helps us to, to grow moving forward. Uh, we don't always see eye to eye on everything. We have disagreements, which, uh, which, which can happen in those situations. But what we always do is come to a decision that we agree on. So when we go in front of the group, we're on the same page. We're thinking the same thing. So our players will, will do the same. Uh, so that's the way I see it. I, I, I provide support for him. Sometimes he's agreed with what I said. Sometimes he's disagreed. Sometimes we've gone with my opinion. Sometimes we've gone with his. But ultimately, we're always having those conversations. And we're always trying to get the best out of each other and, and, and bring out the best in the players. Uh, and, and that's what we're there to do. You know, driving environments and, and where the players can perform at the best. How important are you as are you in particular with with your history and um, success that's synonymous with St. Ellen's? How important is your role to act as a conduit as well between player and staff, player, head coach? How important do you feel those relationships are? Yeah, I've, uh, quite quite high, uh, and I think so more so uh, because of you know in my position, you know I've. You know, I've got staff there who I've worked with both as a co- as a coach and a player. There's players there who I work with as a player and a coach. So I've got a lot of strong relationships within the playing group, within the staff group. So when a new coach, like say Christian, comes in, for example, I've got a pretty strong idea of the way you know you guys in the medical department see things, the way you guys, the guys in the S and C department see things, the way a lot of our players see things. So. You know, me having those strong relationships certainly, certainly helps build the relationships between the head coach and those people. You know, I can give him an idea and an understanding of the way that, that these guys like to work. I like to think that probably give give him a, a bit of a kickstart and and accelerated that process that maybe what maybe would have took six to eight months takes three to four months because uh, I've been able to you know help him along the way in in that respect. I get, this might be a question for for both of you guys really, but. How helpful and important do you think, like having watched St. Helens from the outside in, you've had a change in coach, head coach, but the, the, the support staff underneath has been very consistent. So how helpful and important is that? We see other models in, you know, you look in football where it's wholesale change. How important is that? And I'm not sure if you can uh, share with how much influence or opinion you had in in either offering whether you think they'd be a good fit, whether the values were a real important driving part for the club in in making you all merge well together, um, that would be really interesting for me. Yeah, I think I, I think it, you know, having a, you know the, the staff that we've had there for a number of years now and providing a, you know, what we feel is a really strong package, you know, certainly helps when the when the head coach comes in. Now the head coach comes in and he's got his own ideas, his own thought processes of the way he wants to do things, and we're very receptive of that. But at the same time, we feel it's got to fit within our framework. Uh, and in, when I suppose when the club and adult adults sitting in interviews when they're appointing head coaches, but they're looking for a head coach who wants to bring in his own ideas, but also wants to you know continue and say work within the way that we see things. 
you say I'm not a big believer in one of those things where a head coach comes in and you has to change this, 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 and this. I think wholesale change can be sometimes very disruptive. I think if you have subtle change, particularly when we're being successful like we have been, if you have subtle change, that can bring a freshness and new ideas, but also you're maintaining the consistency in the terms of the package that you've delivered for a long period while still trying to improve it where you can. And I echo everything that Wello said then, really, Sterlo. I think from my perspective, the big thing is you mentioned about being potentially privy to information or or offering information as to what a good fit is for, for any club that you're involved in. I think ultimately it's it's being a good person. It's being uh, coming in, being, being a good bloke. And normally that means that that person is going to be re- receptive to what already is in place at the club, as well as trying to influence it in their, in their, in their own way and what they want to do, which is often to improve us. And we're really fortunate that we've had, you know, Justin come in and we've also had now Christian come in both not just very good at what they do professionally, but all personally really good people. And uh, I think that's what really benefits us too. Um, just on, on you now, mate, and what do you see you going forward? Who Who is Paul Wellens and what's your story going to be uh, going forward professionally and personally? Yeah, I mean, from a prof- professional point of view, you know, when I started playing as a as a you know a young junior, once once I started to get the taste of the Saints Academy, and I wanted to be the best. I wanted to try and uh, you know make the first team. I wanted to then try and play international rugby. And I managed to achieve all those things, which I'm, I'm usually grateful for. And my coaching journey, I don't see any difference. I've been very patient and took my time because I think that's important. Uh, you know, and to serving your apprenticeship, working with the academy and the scholarship, and then moving up to first team. You know, I'm really enjoying the role that I do now as an assistant, but I do want to go go on and go further. Ultimately, I do want to become a head coach at some point. I'm not saying when that is yet, uh, but I do feel I'm getting close to, to that point where I'll be able to to take on a role like that. Uh, you know, having worked with such great coaches as well, I think that 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 certainly helped me. Not always just at St. Helens, but also within England, like Sean Wayne, the likes of Wayne Bennett, the likes of Steve McNamara. Learned so many, so much things from some, some you know, great coaches there. So I feel I'm in a strong position now to be able to take a head coach role one day. But at the same time, I'm in no rush. Uh, you know, personally, you know, I just want to you know, keep keep growing and keep trying to get better. And uh, I mean, it's a difficult one. I've got a young family still learn, and I will spend a lot of time with them. And, you know that that's great as well. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, so sure, like really personally, where where else that that goes for me at the moment. And uh, but I'm very content at the moment. I'm very happy with where things are in in, in my life, both personally and professionally. Uh, uh, yeah, and we'll just see where it goes. No, mate, and I and I appreciate your um, you're always honest and humble when it comes to having any of these conversations that we, that we have with you. So uh, I really appreciate your time. And um, I hope from from our, from our conversations and our interactions in the workplace, I, I can see that you're always so uh, open to ideas. You want to grow and learn. You're always interested in, in our jobs as, outside of the coaching role as well, which uh, you are valuing our opinion. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing, Matt. No, thank you both, Millsy Sterlow, for inviting me on. It's uh, I think you know when you do things like this anyway, like 
why, why I would like to do things like this because it gives you again a chance to reflect. You know, when you when you get asked questions about your past and about your future, it makes you do think a little bit deeper than you probably normally would when you're just doing it yourself. So, you know, thank you for the opportunity. And again, it, you know, doing things like this is another opportunity to learn a bit more about yourself. He never, he never fails to really sort of surprise me of his, his level of humility, um, how unbelievably honest he is and how he comes across with that authenticity when he answers questions. Like, he's just, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a brilliant podcast and we say this every time we finish, but we learn something new. I've learned something new about him and the things that he's gone through there and what he's looking to do in the future and how things affected him back in his playing career that I didn't know at the time. Um, what were your thoughts? Well, the first part is that thank you for, for bringing me into your world. And I, I guess I got a small taste of probably uh, what working in the sort of multidisciplinary team at St. Helens is like, because obviously you and me have had lots of conversations around how we learn, how we want to get better, how we frame good, the lengths we go to broaden our horizons of experience and knowledge. And it was just really refreshing, inspiring uh, to, to see a coach applying the same processes to his trade. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to um, just accept that because someone was a good player, that naturally means they're going to be a good coach. And I, I thought he brought to life that belief or put that to bed, but also then the lengths that he has gone to. And we were just talking off air there about the people that he surrounded himself with or worked with um, to make sure that he is going to be the best version of himself in whatever he does. And I, I love that, me. That, that's what it's all about if you're going to work in in, in sport for me. Man, absolutely. I I really enjoyed I mean, there, there was multiple things that you could take out of that and, and hopefully our listeners take out of that and, and learn something from it as well. But big things for me is his experiences winning individual accolades were really important to him. But ultimately, the feelings and emotions that stay with him uh, the experiences that he had is winning, winning as part of a team and with his teammates. And that's, that's again, obviously a huge uh, sign of humility, but it's also a sign of a, of a, of a true team player that um, really sees how important their relationships are. I think the other one was how he has improved and how he is uh, a better person and professional or a better coach by reflecting on his experiences, both failures and successes. Uh, we seem to forget sometimes that, you know, we can learn more from, from not mistakes necessarily, but poor experiences and failures than we probably can learn from successes. But that reflection process is really, really, really pivotal in making sure that we can have some, some um, degree of strategy going forward. I think, uh, that's that's sort of not where I was going, but in and around this piece for us as well, around decompression, 
you need to create and ironically even the podcast for us has become a space and and hello alluded to it and i've never thought of it that way as well as a chance to reflect and answer questions which is is, is a form of sort of of reflection and learning at the same time but we need to formally create those spaces or 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 take the opportunities when they arise and they're not always comfortable um and as as we've learned as well this podcast the old early doors or still imposter syndrome sits in the back of the head but um i think it's it's uh it's it's that area of what separates maybe the the good practitioners from the great ones is is that time spent reflecting and and being self-aware i loved his bit uh, his analogy of uh, homer simpson that's one that i'll definitely steal at some point um but the other piece that i've just seen down here on my notes as well is just i'm not sure everyone can appreciate and maybe we do what sort of attitudes and behaviors it takes to play 495 games in a career like that is a ridiculous amount of rugby league and physical emotional toil Matt, listen i i can't i've only been involved in in the later stages of his career um probably matt daniels at the club would give us a better or and some of the players that play with him would give us a better appreciation of his mentality but what he said in that podcast is absolutely true. He, the way he prepares and the way he challenged himself was to be the best he could possibly be at everything at any time. But but subtly, he wasn't loud about that. He just did what he needed to do to get 100% of himself ready to perform. Uh, and I don't think that's changed with regards to his coaching stuff either. He's, his coaching bits and pieces are exactly the same with the way he goes about that. I've got a quick question for you around uh, his retirement. And you touched on it for how important do you think your role was in making sure you found every single possible avenue and ticked it off as a, as a possibility to help any athlete, not just Wello, and we've all been there, to help make sure that when that book or that story is closed that it's definitive and that there's a never there's never that question mark left of or what if maybe if i and i think we as honest practitioners as as medical practitioners we need to ask ourselves those questions as well so we know we've supported them and it's it's something i've wrangled with because i always want i i don't think i'd ever rest easily either no oh, man I think I think you basically just um, you've answered it for me, but you bang you bang on right. I think what we do to, to use Wellow's analogy, we're really fortunate, and I know you're the same with our chats. We really appreciate the team that we've got, but also the connections we've got with people that we send the players to for more expertise opinions. So if we send player to a hip specialist, a knee specialist, a shoulder specialist, we trust these people implicitly to offer us information. So having relationships where we trust people who are more expert than ourselves offers information for us to then do what we need to do for that player. But my big thing is, and you 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 alluded to it there, and Wello alluded to it in his own in his own preparation for what he does. You want to be the best that you can be, and what the best you can be is 
as a physiotherapist is creating or, or anybody involved with medical care of a player is creating the most information possible to make the correct decision. And you can't do that without intel. You can't do that without information. So you need to scour research. You need to read about things. You need to speak to different people that are better in that particular area than you are to gather all the available information to then make an informed choice. And I think that's one thing that I sort of asked Wello about his decision. Was it made easier? Because every avenue was exhausted everything that could possibly be done. And that's because he wanted to do that. He wasn't forced on him. Some people make a decision earlier because they're, they're, they're done. That's it. Not a problem. But it's our jobs to find things that are out there that are potentially maybe research-driven and maybe experience-driven through experts to offer us more information and more avenues for treatment, management, whatever else it may be. What you've just described is not a million miles away from the process that Wellow's just described about him doing his best to become a better coach. 100%. Different opinions, experience. And I'm looking forward as we build our guest list for the pod, like how many similarities, and this is back to learning, like every experience, every shared experience, every guest there's themes of things we we will use, we will discuss further, we will highlight in our own practice. And like fundamentally, that's why I can imagine you enjoy going to work in the environment you do every day. We love this podcast. I love surrounding myself and going to work where I do because we get to do that all the time. But the two pieces that underpin it are trust but also, I, I think sometimes we get it wrong in, in sport. And I'm, I, I, I'm interested to see what you think is this, this high challenge, but everyone forgets the high support piece. And I, I thought that was really nice. He, he brought that to life. It's not just about challenge and debate, but it's also that a, a space where those decisions are highly supported and everyone feels supported within an organisation to, to, to feel free to express that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think um, our support network was a little bit underlooked sometimes, um, and I think it was uh, it was Isaac Newton that said, "We stand on the shoulders of giants." I think our our giants are probably our family and our friends that, like Wello alluded to, make the sacrifices in life to allow us to do the jobs that we do. Um, yeah, and 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 they need to be recognised as as often as they possibly can be. another unbelievably insightful podcast if you have any comments reviews please drop into our socials or onto our website www.thephysiospill.com thanks and see you again soon